Well, welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I'm so glad that you have come along. This is going to be a great show, and I'm really excited to be able to continue this series where we're looking at the future of three denominations that I care deeply about. We looked at the Salvation Army, the Church in Nazarene, and today we're starting our section where we're talking about the future of the United Methodist Church, and we're looking at this from two different perspectives. So if you see today's perspective with Adam Hamilton, know that there's another perspective coming next week with Rob Renfro. So uh, before we get into that, I want to make sure you know that this podcast is brought to you by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And we serve denominations from all sort of backgrounds. And just to highlight too, particularly in light of this episode today, we serve people in the United Methodist Church. We have several people preparing for United Methodist ministry, but also we have recently been approved by the Global Methodist Church. And our course of study is approved by the Global Methodist Church. We have just in the last six weeks, had 150 Global Methodist course of study students added to our school. So we're really delighted by that. We'd love for you to think about our school. And you can find out more about us at wbs.edu. Secondly, this podcast is brought to you by WPO Development. Keith Waters and his team at WPO have done more than 250 successful capital campaigns across the country with churches, with social service institutions, with educational institutions. They come in and help people develop a plan with a mission planning study, a strategic plan, and then a capital campaign. And they have great a great team there that I highly recommend to you. So you can find out more about them in my show notes. Also, I want you to know some things are happening at my website, andymillerthe3rd.com. That's andymillerii.com. You can get a free tool. It's called Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching if you sign up for my email list there. And also, I have, this, I have something I'm going to offer for people on today's podcast, particularly people who are listening in today, my study of the Little Book of Jude, a six-week study that uses a video curriculum and discussion guides. It's great for small groups and discussion discussion groups, and then also Sunday school classes. Um, you Here's what I'm going to offer today. That if you get that video curriculum, if you enter in the code GMC or UMC, either one will work, GMC or UMC, you'll get 50% off that study. And so people have been using that all over the country as we have since the call to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. All right, it's time to bring in my guest, and I am delighted to welcome in Pastor Adam Hamilton, who serves with the largest United Methodist Church in the United States, the Church of the Resurrection in the Kansas City area with multiple campuses. He's written multiple books. He's somebody that I've read and I've appreciated um, through the years, so I'm thankful to have Adam on the po podcast. Adam, welcome. Hey, Andy, it's great to be with you today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And by the way, I'm uh, getting ready to do a Vespers on Jude in a couple of weeks. So I want to figure out how I can order your curriculum and take a look at it. Oh, sounds, thanks sounds so very much. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's a book coming out later this summer as well. But again, you can get that code UMC. Go to andymillerthird.com. I sound like a salesman. I sound like a no, salesman. That's okay. This is a good time to, for you to mention that. Thank you. And uh, if every small group in your church wants to use it, that would be fine too. Okay, all right. Well, we'll start with my vespers. I do this Tuesday night thing on Facebook, and and usually pretty good response of people from across the country. So I'll make sure I, I let them know about what you're doing. Great. Well, I'll make uh, and also we'll have a link to your website. Would you want to mention your website is AdamHamilton.com? Well, uh, yes, AdamHamilton.com. But the uh, it's on Facebook. Pastor Adam Hamilton is where I do the okay. vespers every Tuesday night, seven thirty to eight fifteen. Great. And it's usually just a just a conversation about faith and life and whatever's on my mind for that particular day. So great. 
Well, I'm so glad that you are willing to accept this invitation. When I sent you the email, I was like, oh, I wonder if he'll do it. Because sometimes people don't like to be put into different camps. And I understand that, particularly somebody who's serving as a pastor or somebody who served as a local church pastor for 15 years. Sure. I understand that. But you've been vocal and you've been a leader within your denomination. And so to have these parallel perspectives about the future, I think will be helpful to people. And so I just yeah. want to be very clear at the front, just for, for people listening. I said this to you. I'm not here to debate you. Uh, I, I just want to ask hopefully some good questions that will lead to clarity as people are thinking of the United Methodist Church. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I'm glad to have a chance to be here. Before we get to those questions, Adam, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your sure. testimony? Sure, sure. So I was baptized Catholic as an infant. I, uh, I was pretty much nothing growing up. My parents went to a United Methodist Church for a few years, and uh, we ended up, they got divorced and we dropped out of church at that point. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the time I was in eighth grade, I announced I was an atheist and going into right. high school. Uh, that's kind of where I stood. And uh, then I got invited to a little Pentecostal church and I uh, didn't believe in God, but I got there and I saw there were cute girls. I believed in girls. And so I started going <laughs> to church and, uh, uh, and really to pick up girls to begin with. And then, uh, you know, everybody had their Bibles with them and they, you know, carried them, you know, and I'd never read the Bible. And so I got out the Bible my grandmother had given me when I was a child, uh, a Catholic Bible. And I began reading and I decided in my freshman year, I would read the entire Bible. So I, I read it through. And again, I was an atheist starting to just read the Bible. And I um, read through, I got uh, got to the book of Psalms. I was halfway through my freshman year in high school. And I went to my pastor and I said, pastor, I've, you talk about Jesus all the time. I haven't found him. I'm in the book of Psalms and I haven't found uh -huh. Jesus anywhere. And he said, well, the P is silent at Psalms. You got to go to the gospel. So I would read it, you know, three chapters of the old Testament tonight and two chapters, of the gospels uh, to get to know Jesus. And uh, read through the Gospel of Matthew and really came to love Jesus. Read through the Gospel of Mark and the same, but I still struggled with the idea of the resurrection. Okay. And I got to the Gospel of Luke, and uh, I've written a book on John. I love John, but I Luke is the Gospel that really drew me to Jesus. And his concern, Luke's concern, to show us that Jesus cared about the marginalized, the people who were made to feel small and insignificant or pushed mm -hmm. down, second class. And as a kid who felt a little that way myself, I. I just literally fell in love with Jesus in that book. And I thought, I want to follow this man. I got to the, got to the end where he is resurrected from the grave. And it finally made sense to me that if God had come to us in the flesh, and I didn't fully understand the incarnation yet, but if, you know, if God had come to us in some way in Jesus and he was tortured to death, and that was the end of the story, and that means evil and hate and sin have the final word. Sure. And even as a 14 year old kid, I thought that can't be the end of the story. And so finally yeah. the resurrection made sense to me. And I got down on my knees and said, Jesus, I know I'm just 14 years old, but I want to follow you. And if there's anything you can do with me and with my life, I pray you will. And uh, I'm going to give my life to you. And yeah. I still pray that prayer every morning. I was on my knees this morning. And every morning on my knees, I, my day starts um, just here I am, God. I belong to yeah. you, whatever you can do with me. I know I'm 58 years old now. <laughs> if you can do anything with a 58-year-old guy, I pray you will. But Jesus, my intention is to follow you and to love you and to serve you with my life. And that's a little of my story. And yeah. I went to Old Roberts University to be a study to be a Pentecostal pastor. And it was there that, uh, that I was drawn to Wesley's theology and gave my life, uh, not only to Christ, but at the, at ORU, uh, gave my life to ministry in the United Methodist church to be a okay. part of renewing and revitalizing the denomination. And, um, went to Perkins school of theology. I know you have your D men from there. I got my MD yeah. from there in 1988. And my dream was to start a church for thinking people where mm -hmm. non-religious and nominally religious people could become deeply okay. committed Christians. And that's been our our task, we started in 1990 with four people. Okay. Today, we have about 30,000 people who worship with us on any given weekend on uh, in person at six locations, online and on TV. And it's been uh, here, just here in the Kansas City area. It's been uh, an exhilarating experience. 
So that's a little of my story. Wow. wow. That's great. Thank you for consolidating it. So uh, it's such a concise way, but that's <laughs> great. I lo love to hear um, all the things God's done through your ministry there. Okay. So I'm going to start these questions. And again, sure. they're the exact same questions. Now I'm going to ask Rob Renfro as well. So people can sure, check you'll hear that a out. very different perspective from Rob. Uh, we, we agree on some things, but, uh, but we disagree on some other things when it comes to the United Methodist church. And so anyway, but yeah, I'm glad that's to right. Yeah. And that, that's a point. And I just wanted to be able to give opportunity for there yep. to be, you know, clarity. And, and I thought, well, well, the same questions might be way out there. And then that, that seemed to be effective too, with the other denominations that I've done this with, with the Salvation Army and then Absolutely. with the Church of Nazarene. So you know, I've, I've gotten critiques from both sides on both denominations, and I've gotten compliments from both sides on both, yep. both, both denominations. So hopefully the same will be true here. Now, this Absolutely. first question might be something that has actually happened to you, but I'm going to ask it in this way. So if I was a newspaper reporter for the BBC, I guess I wouldn't be a newspaper reporter. Maybe they don't have a newspaper. If I was a reporter for the BBC and I asked you to explain what's going on in the second largest Protestant denomination in the USA, what would your answer be? My answer would be that uh, like the rest of society in the United States, as well as around the world, we, you know, first of all, the United Methodist Church is a, is a church that's made up of, we might call it the, you know, the, the broad center. That's where United Methodism's sort of sweet spot is, is we have people who are on the left, people are on the right. Uh, we, we are conservative evangelicals. We are progressive, you know, social gospel people, and you, and we bring those things together. So at our best, we're, people ask me, you know, are you conservative or liberal? And my answer is yes, I'm both. And and that I think is the sweet spot of Methodism. And, um, and we disagree about how we think God looks at gay and lesbian, his gay and lesbian children, and whether God looks at them as, um, needing to become straight or uh, to, you know, if they're going to be in a relationship to be in a heterosexual relationship, or if God in his mercy and grace uh, looks at gay and lesbian people, his children, and says, you know what, there's a place for you to, to be in covenant relationship with somebody of the same gender and to love and follow me. And so I'd say that we disagree about that. And there's a whole lot of people who are in the middle and they're not really sure where they stand. And then there's people who are on the further to the left and they're really clear where they stand. And there's people further to the right. They're really clear where they stand. And uh, and that no, those numbers have been shifting for some time in, in society as well as in the church. And, um, and so the folks who are concerned about in the future, the United Methodist Church allowing gay and lesbian people to marry um, are saying, we can't stay. We need to go. And, and they would couch it in terms of biblical authority. I would couch it in terms of biblical interpretation, how we're interpreting scripture. And, um, you know, there are really great faithful followers of Jesus on both sides of this, from my perspective. And um, I tend to be left of center on this. And when it comes to theology, I would tell you I'm right of center. So when it comes to all the things in the creeds, those matter to me, but, uh, uh, and are things that I embrace and teach and preach. But anyway, that's what I would say is, is we are, we are having a, we're watching people who are choosing to leave and form something new. Um, and they are committed to much of the same theology that the United Methodist Church is committed to. This is really, despite some claims, the vast majority of United Methodists affirm the historic essentials of the Christian faith. This is about how we're interpreting scripture when it comes to um, how God looks at his children who are gay and lesbian. Great. That's helpful. And if you're to think about the perspective you described saying being left of center in one area, right of center in another, that would be probably why people have characterized you as a centrist. Would that be right? I mean, there's. I think that's right. I think, you know, the, the titles all fail us at various I points, know. but I think people recognize uh, when it comes to the historic doctrines, of the Christian faith, 
I'm willing to die for those. When it comes to uh, loving people and trying to understand the, you know, the both social and psychological dynamics of who we are as human beings, uh, I'm going to err on the side of, um, you know, mercy and compassion and justice and, um, you know, listen to people. And, and I do think, so I had a friend of mine who was a Southern Baptist pastor of one of the largest churches here in Kansas City. He's no longer there, but uh, it was a pretty conservative, you know, Southern Baptist church. But he told me once, he said, you know, I can't say this like in these words, but if you love Jesus, you're going to be conservative when it comes to doctrine and theology, and you're going to be liberal when it comes to justice. And those two things have to be held hand in hand. And he said, I got to be careful how I talk about some things. But he said, I don't see how I can be anything but, you know, what Micah says we're supposed to do, what God desires of us. And that is that we do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with people. Yeah. That's it. One thing that's interesting with these interviews that I've done, and this is the, the third one, um, I had somebody who I thought would have been in a similar place as you before the interview, and that was Tom Ord at the, in the Nazarene tradition. And when I got to doctrinal standards with him, the questions I had there, I said, for instance, like, I'm sure that you would embrace the Apostles' Creed. And I just, I kind of just assumed that fact. Well, he stopped me. He said, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 I'm not there. Hmm. And and I, honestly, I was taken back as somebody who's, you know, at a seminary, I'm just the yeah. Apostles' Creed. Like, how could you leave that? But and and he explained it a little bit. We didn't go into in depth there, but that's sure. one of the tensions I think we're going to hear even in this interview is the tension not just between you and the uh, conservative side. Forgive me for just using one quick word to define sure. where things are, but um, at this same time, is, is the tension with wanting to affirm the creeds and those who I, I saw um, a bishop from Iowa saying, "Well, we don't have to agree on on Jesus," you know. I'm yeah. You know, those kind of comments, so I would just say, and I don't know, I don't, uh, I don't know what exactly was said, but oftentimes if, if I'm watching the whole context of a conversation, yeah, it makes sense when, if I only hear the soundbite or the, or a narrower clip sure, sure, and, uh, and then all of a sudden you say, wait a minute, that, that can't be right. And I, I, I've noticed this on a, at least a few folks out there who are championing leaving the United Methodist church, the ability to take a soundbite and to, um, and to make it sound like that's, that's all that person said. And if right. you hear the rest of it, you go, oh, okay, I understand what they were saying. And uh, so, yes, uh, Jesus matters a lot to us. <laughs> and, and there are essentials when it comes to the faith that are, that I think we hold on to. I, I don't, I know Tom, I've, I've met him before. Um, and I don't know what, you know, what he was referring to in the apostles sure. or things in the creeds where you can ask, you know, okay, so exactly what do I think about the resurrection of the body? Did right. that capture you know, do I believe, I mean, you know, so there are places there, I believe in the resurrection, I believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, but when it comes to, um, you know, what, what is our, what is our body, our heavenly body look like? I think there's room for us to have some disagreement about that. And, and, uh, and the way it's at least couched in the resurrection of the body, it makes people thinking that the physical body is going to be resurrected. And that's a problem for some people when it comes to, uh, when it comes to um, cremation and other things. So I've got a few questions about, you know, about the resurrection of the body, but generally speaking, the creeds were, it, were trying to express the faith as people understood it in response to the heresies that were, or the, you know, the other approaches to faith at the time. And I'm, I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty strong supporter of the creeds. I think they capture uh, for us the truth of the gospel as best as we can understand it. I also think we're going to get to heaven. Uh, so the Trinity, I believe in the Trinity. Absolutely. Right. right. But I think we're going to get to heaven. We're going to go, oh, that's how it works. And I think none of us, our three pounds of gray matter aren't sufficient to fully comprehend, you know, the mystery of God. And so I think there's a whole lot of places where we, 
where we have to be able to say, these are the convictions with the knowledge that I have. And I understand that God is far more than my, than a human being can fully comprehend. Right. I mean, you're, you're exactly right that this is how we come to a place of identifying what essentials are is probably the, the crux of the conversation and the conflict that we're experiencing. And it's, of course, not just in United Methodism, but in, in multiple right. denominations. So one of the things, interesting things that's going to happen is that at the next general conference, there's a lot of question is rather or not the book of discipline will change the definition of marriage. And do you think that that's going, or and particularly to the standards for ordination, do you think no. that will happen? And if so, I have a follow-up from there. Sure. <clears throat> so I think uh, if not 2024, by 2026, we will have removed the language in the book of discipline that was inserted since 1972. So bear in mind, none of this was in there before 1972. So as a denomination or our predecessor denominations, we didn't speak to any of these things uh, directly uh, prior to that. I think we're going to return the Book of Discipline to where it was before 1972, which means that we're not going to be trying to, I, and I could be wrong about this part right. in particular, because the definition of marriage is like one little half a sentence or something, one little line in the Book of Discipline. And um, I think what we are going to, what where, where we're heading is to be able to say, if you are more conservative, you can be more conservative. If you are more progressive on this particular question of same-sex marriage, you can be more progressive if you are in, if you, as I do, believe that uh, God's mercy for His gay and lesbian children would allow them to marry, then you're going to be able be able to do that. If you don't believe, if that's not where your heart and your conviction and your reading of Scripture is, you will not have to do that. And that's really where we're going to land. Is there's going to be a place for conservatives, a place for progressives, and for people in between. My views have changed over a long period of time, and most people who see this differently today, their views have changed as well. So I think that's where that's where we're heading is uh, is that we are going to remove language that says the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. We're going to remove the prohibitions against same gender marriage. We are not going to insert pro, we're not going to insert anything that says you have to hold this view. So pastors have always been allowed to determine who they're going to marry, except when it comes to gay and lesbian people. And then the Book of Discipline since 1972 added the phrases that would not allow people to marry somebody of the same gender. I think there's a there is a percentage of our pastors who are ready and willing to do that. There's a large percentage who say, I'm not really sure whether that's where I'm at right now. And there's a percentage who say, I will never do that. And that's that will continue after uh, we, you know, after 2024. That's helpful. Uh, one of the things I wonder about is as I've talked to churches and as I'm serving people who are training for ministry and people are coming to us here at Wesley Biblical Seminary asking for advice, a lot yeah. of people have been given the advice to wait until this general conference to see what happens and then and then go from there. Do you think if that happens and then if it's 24 or 26, 2024 or 2026, um, should they be allowed to pursue a path toward leaving? You know, there is another path towards leaving, and I don't remember what it is in our book of discipline. There's one that expires the end of this year, and it's one that has to do with, and it was actually put in place in the book of discipline by the conservative side to thinking that right, the right. progressives would be leaving. And uh, and it allows for departure for this particular cause. In a lot of annual conferences, there have been people who could leave, who were leaving for other reasons. And that, I don't remember the particular wording of that, but there is another exit strategy that's out there an exit path. And I, I do think, I, I do think for churches and pastors who say, um, you know what, no matter what, we can't be in a denomination where anybody's going to be allowed to 
uh, officiated same gender weddings. I think they should. I think they should take advantage of the path that we have between now and the end of the year. And if if that's their if they're absolutely determined, we are not. We cannot be in a denomination where anybody's allowed to do this. This is the time to go ahead and leave. If okay. they say, you know what, as long as we're not required to do this, as long as we're able to maintain a more conservative posture on, on in terms of marriage, I think that's that's where we're heading. We're heading to a place where where there will be uh, where people will have the ability to practice who they marry based upon their interpretation of scripture. That that is where we're going. Nobody's going to be required to officiate at same gender weddings, and um, and annual conferences will determine uh, who they're going to ordain. And uh, but I think I think that is a place where I don't see there's huge numbers of gay and lesbian people who are waiting to be ordained. And I think if they are, if they meet all, so after 2024, if they meet all the other criteria, theology, spirituality, psychology, they have the giftedness for ministry and, uh, and they are, and already we've ordained people who are self-avowed, but not practicing homosexuals. They, they would say, I'm going to live celibately, but I know I'm, the way I am, I am gay or lesbian. I'm going to live celibate. We're already ordaining those people. So the question is some who are, this, um, and some who are practicing, right? Like there's bishops who uh, there are in some annual conferences people who are ordaining who are practicing. Um, just who wanted have, to make sure, who I'm have, right. yeah, who have violated, who have said this is an unjust law in the book of discipline. We're going to go ahead and do that. Most are waiting till after 2024. And so, here's what I think. I, I don't think there's huge numbers of persons who are like that. I know some who are who are very gifted for ministry and who are serious about their spiritual life, their love for Jesus. They have gifts for ministry, and they're also serious about the sexual ethics of the of the Christian faith. They're not sleeping around. They're not doing anything. They're really serious. But who will ultimately marry, or may ultimately marry somebody? And those folks, I think there are churches out there who would say, "Give us a great preacher who loves people and loves Jesus, and who's striving to live a holy life as they understand it." We would love them to be our pastor. So I think there are churches out there who, who would say that, and there are churches out there who would say, "Please don't give us." somebody who's, you know, practicing homosexual, we, we don't want them. And I think that's in, uh, I believe that is exactly what's going to happen is churches are going to, no, no bishop should be sending somebody to a church that's going to hurt the church or hurt the pastor. And um, so I think that will happen 2024 or maybe 2026. Again, we'll remove the prohibition, which allows boards of ordained ministry to ordain who they feel like are qualified candidates for ordained ministry who are theologically, you know, qualified, who are spiritually qualified, psychologically qualified, and who have the gifts for ministry. I'm going to jump down to the fourth question, just because I think it's more in line with what you're saying there. And one of the things that I've heard as, and I, and I, Adam, I just want you to know, I hear you saying that from your perspective, like the centrist perspective, they, nobody should be forced to do a wedding that they, that, that doesn't align with their theological perspective. Like I, I hear you say, but I have heard the other side too, on the more progressive side, and I just highlighted the bishops who are practicing homosexuals in the Western jurisdiction. So it seems like the argument from that perspective is justice delayed, is justice denied. And yeah. it seems that like that, that perspective is going to make it hard. I mean, I, like I, I say, I said, like I, I hear your heart on this, but you have a, a centrist perspective and a progressive perspective, and it's how are these going to work together? How are these perspectives right. going to come together? 
Well, you know, for as long as there's been United Methodists, there have been a progressives and there have been conservatives and there have been moderates or centrists. I don't like the word moderate because I don't take faith in moderation. No, you didn't use it. I used it. But, um, but here's what I'd say is that virtually everyone that I speak to, I know that there are, and you know, the argument is a sound argument, you know, when it comes to justice. And I think as in, as is the case with a lot of things, down the road, we'll look back and we'll be embarrassed and sometimes ashamed of things we accepted that we shouldn't have accepted and things that we didn't accept that we, you know, we should have accepted. I mean, so I'm going to take a little side note for a second, then I want to come back to your question. Um, I just finished reading um, Frederick Douglass's final autobiography. He wrote it in, I think it was 1881. And he goes back and he looks over his entire life. He wrote three autobiographies, of course, across the course of his life, the great abolitionist, remarkable human being, you know, and, uh, and listening to him describe the Methodist class leaders, you know, who broke up his Sunday school class because he was trying to teach other slaves how to read, or yeah. the uh, arguments from Scripture for um, for slavery that were used when uh, when they were trying to, you know, when the slave masters were convincing their slaves uh, that this was a ordained by God, this is something that's allowed by God, and and I think after the Civil War and given some time there were very few pastors who would have said that they were proud. They embraced the idea that slavery should be something that's practiced, you know? And so I think, I think there are things that today I am willing to embrace that down the road, I'm going to look back and go, I shouldn't have ever embraced it. I'm uh, quite apart from this issue we're talking about. So I'm also a pragmatist and a pragmatist who recognizes that people are different places at different times in their lives and recognizing the journey that I've been on. So here's, here's what I want to, I want to wrap this little part up by saying every person that I know that I talk to, every large church pastor across the denomination, people who are advocates for uh, same-gender marriage, include full inclusion in the denomination, while I know that there are some progressives who would make a different argument, almost all of them are saying, look, we don't want people who don't want to do gay weddings to do them. Who wants to get married by somebody who thinks that the husband, you know, the two people getting married are living in sin? And so you know, I just, I simply do, do not believe. And I will say, you know, in terms of whatever influence I have, I'm going to, I'm going to influence to allow people to be where they are and they may change their views may change, but we are not going to force people to do weddings that are not, that's not where they're at. Even on my staff, I've got 28 ordained clergy on my staff and the, you know, we have some who are more conservative and some who are more progressive and so I will just say, I don't know anybody who's advocating for that position personally. I probably do know some, I just don't have conversations with them. And it's a small number in our denomination. And to be honest, I'm grateful for the people who are championing social justice, even if it's on a cause that I'm not sure I'm, that's where I'm at. I, I'm mm -hmm. grateful that they're speaking up in that way, because that's how, I mean, I think they, they help us think differently. And you see this, I'm, you know, in the, in the Nazarene church, you've been a part of that and this and Salvation Army. I'm guessing you have people who are relatively speaking more to the left or more to the right in both sure. of those pieces. Yeah. and they, and they bring a value, they bring something important to the table. And um, so, yeah, th that's the interesting dialogue piece that we're working through is what is it that unites us? So I'm just uh, envisioning an idea here. Sure. I didn't write this as a question, but you talk about how you were at Oral Roberts and that was when you decided to join the United Methodist Church. And I always, I get, I've heard you this part of your testimony two or three times. Yeah. I won with Mark Tooley's interview. Um, mm -hmm. And you said you went and you were saying, I read a book. And I'm like, oh man, what book did he, what book brought him to Methodist? I want to get this yeah. book out. And you said the book of discipline. 
right? Yeah. I read the book of discipline. Oh, there, you even have it right there in your hand. There it is. So now a young Adam Hamilton at Oral Roberts University goes and reads that book and reads what it says about same-sex relationships or whatever the specific language. Sorry, not in the Methodist Church. I don't know all sure. the paragraph numbers and yep. that sort of thing. Yep. But you would have thought, okay, this is what this church believes. I'm yep. going to join this group. And you join this group. And for, forgive me if this sounds too blunt, but this is the language, this is the way I've talked sure. about in the Salvation Army, which has sim a similar sort of process. It's like you come in and you decide to change from what the Book of Discipline says. In my view, it seems like you're the one who's changed. You, yeah. Like you're the one to, who've moved. How, yeah. how is that? How's that wrong? Uh, well, first of all, I'd say what drew me to the United Methodist Church is its theological statement and its historical statement. And those are all found in the, in, uh, it's called our theological task in the right, book of discipline. Right. It's, it's section three. And those are our bedrock foundational understandings. The stuff that's in the rest of the book of discipline a lot of it, actually, it's rather boring, most of it, and it's a lot of rules. And uh, on those rules, some of them are uh, rules that get changed. In fact, that's why we have a general conference is every four years, we reevaluate those rules. We don't reevaluate right. our doctrine. We reevaluate our rules and our social principles as well. Our social principles are things that as we see it with the light that we have today, this is what we think about whatever the issue may be, uh, global warming or you know, uh, you know, immigration or whatever. Those views in the social principles, not everybody agrees with, but they're generally our best attempt at trying to do Christian ethics, and those change over time. And so the thought that whatever the Book of Discipline looked like when I became a United Methodist, that the rules portion of that is something that's not going to ever change, that, that's, not right. how it, that's not how it works. When it comes to doctrine, that is how it works. So I would say if I decided that I was a Unitarian and I didn't believe in the Trinity anymore, I should leave. Right. Yeah. Um, when it comes to you know, prior to 1972, these things were not in there. And so they were added as society changed, as people, you know, as we had debates and arguments. That's part of how we work out, you know, our how we're going to live out our faith as a church. And so I disagree with the idea that if you change your views from what the Book of Discipline said in 1972, not 1968, right. when the denomination was formed, but 1972, then you should leave. That didn't make any sense to me. I think what we do try to do and what I have tried to do is to live according to these principles, even when I don't agree with them. So there are, you know, at resurrection, we don't do same gender weddings. Um, they, we have lay people who can do them outside of the congregation, but our clergy, I've just said, we are living according to this book because this, until it changes, we're living according to this book until there comes gotcha. a point where we just can't anymore. And so, you know, it's just, and I would say it's the same thing. It's like love it or leave it when it comes to America. You know, so you had Dr. King and others who were advocating for violating laws that were unjust laws and uh, and doing that in a peaceful way, um, a nonviolent way. Should Dr. King and everyone else who were with him, should they have left the United States and gone to live in Europe or somewhere else? Or was it right for them to say right. these are unjust laws and we should work against them? But we need to do that in a way that doesn't violate other laws. And so I think there's a place for us when it comes to conscience to saying this simply isn't right. And, and, and again, going back to the issue of slavery, it, it was that very thing that led to the change, changes in who we are as now United Methodist was the willingness to say what our discipline says is, is not okay. We have, to, we have to speak up. And I would think, I, I'm pretty sure this is true with you. I know this is true with you. If you see an unjust law, even though it's a law in your state, 
I'm hoping you're going to speak up and say, you know, that's just not right. You're not going to say you're not. And somebody might say, well, move to Kansas. Then they don't have that law. No, you're going to say, this is not right for me as a Christian to, to live according to an unjust law for other people. That's just, that's both prophetic and it's, and it's Christian. And so yeah, that's helpful. I, 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 it's helpful for you to articulate this as clearly as you are, Adam. And certainly, you're a gifted communicator. And I just want to rearticulate to people that this is not a debate. Some of my friends are going to say, Andy, you know you have a really good response to that. Why didn't you mm-hmm. say it right there? And I'd say, I do have over 100 podcasts, and uh, we hosted a conference on this theme at Weston Biblical Seminary, where we looked at whether or not human sexuality is a matter of dogma or an essential. So I will leave it there, Adam. But thank you so much for answering the question with the convictions sure. that you have. Sure. Let's go on to the next uh, question three. So we'll then we'll skip question four. Do yep. you support a plan to give international churches the same opportunities to disaffiliate that churches in the USA have possessed? Well, so uh, yes, of course. I think that people should be able to. If let me say a couple things. First of all, our the clause that that creates problems with people disaffiliating um, is a clause that was inserted by Wesley himself because he didn't want churches that were leaving over some, you know, to easily be able to leave. So we have our polity says that, you know, all of our property, everything else we own in common, we hold it in trust at, a, at an annual conference level. And, uh, and so making it easy for people to leave is not, that's, that's something we've tried to avoid. And in fact, we've made it much easier for people to leave, but we've done this, you know, historically going back to Wesley, uh, it was, it was, he made it harder for people to leave because they knew there could be a pastor who could take a congregation to leave, you know, and there might've been 20 years worth of ministry done in one cent in one way. And then suddenly you've got a pastor who's maybe coming as a Calvinist and says, you know, we're going to, we're going to do Calvinism now. And then they're going to take their, you know, their preaching house with them. So I appreciate that Wesley made that hard when it comes to international. I'm not, to be honest, I don't know as much about what is or isn't allowed for them there. Again, you've got churches that have left, uh, you know, they're typically small portions like Bulgaria, I think has maybe 16 or 20 or 30 churches. I'm not sure. Pretty small churches. The the right. largest of those is the Russian United Methodist Church, which voted to leave in mass. And I think there's a there may be 100 or 200 churches in that. And that's a that was very sad for me because I've spent a lot of time in Russia and doing leadership training and development. And I love the people who were there and I hated to see them leave. Uh, and the and the bishop is somebody I, I dearly love, Edward Kage. And uh, but you know, they, they managed to find a way to do that. And I think the book of discipline is adapted and adaptable in other settings. And so I don't think this is quite as big an issue as what it's made to sound like for some people, given the fact that the entire Russian United Methodist Church with its 200 churches left, uh, Bulgaria left, there's others who are staying. And uh, so I think, and I think when it comes to the big <clears throat> question is Africa, Mm-hmm. what's going to happen when it comes to Africa. Right. And, uh, and there, I, I'm really not certain. I, I used to think I knew where, what was going to happen. I thought they were all leaving and which made me sad. I've been to Africa too. And I, I hated to see that, but I'm, I'm hearing that maybe that's not exactly the case. And especially again, when we've got a, the ability to adapt the book of discipline regionally. And when churches are aware that we are not going to have something, the discipline that says United Methodist must officiate at same-sex weddings. That will not. Okay, that's really helpful. Let me just jump in there. So uh, that's something we didn't say earlier. Maybe, maybe we didn't. Sorry if I missed it. That yeah. the book of discipline should adapt regionally. Like yeah. you, th- you think that's what's going to happen? Well, it already it already is able to be adapted regionally. So okay. in in other regions, their discipline reads differently. They they elect bishops differently. They or you know they are elected to different terms. 
So there is adapt adaptability. There are certain sections of the discipline that that are not adaptable. So our doctrines, uh, mm -hmm. so our theological task, our historical statement, uh, our social principles, those are not, I don't think social principles are adaptable, uh, you know, regionally. But if we have removed the, the language that's in the non-adaptable portion of the book of discipline, then that, that would make it possible for annual conferences to, or regions, not annual conferences, but regions, to be able to insert portions in the adaptable parts that have to do with how they're going to practice ministry. Mm, and okay. so, yeah, I, I, and that's part of the reason why I think th there are a lot of, a lot of churches globally who have partnerships with churches that are staying United Methodist. And the idea that they, like we, we've played a pretty big role in, in supporting the folks in the, in the Malawi annual conference. And okay. I've been there several times. And, you know, I think there's those partnerships, people don't want to leave them and they, and they don't really want to leave the United Methodist church. They just need to be clear about, you know, this particular question. And um, so I think, I think there will be, there will be provisions for adapting the book of discipline, removing the portions from the non-adaptable book of discipline that affect this question, and then allowing it to be placed in other places. So in principle, you agree that they should have the same basic idea that they leave the same way. Yeah, I, I, I don't understand why that what happened in the insertion in the Book of Discipline in 2019 that wasn't applicable to them. Okay. Um, but I do think that um, I think the other clause that allows people to leave should be applicable to everybody. And I think that, I think that is, I, I'm not an expert on the, on the book of discipline right. in that area. Well, so, I, yeah. I tried um, to check just so you know, I, I brought, ran these questions through people on multiple sides and, yeah. you know, not exactly a United Methodist book of discipline scholar, uh, right. but I understand a bit of the history of, of how the Methodist Episcopal church came about in 1784, yep. all these type of things. And I, like, yep. I get that, but um, I don't understand yep. that altogether, but I, yeah. I this, that, that was a, that was a question that on both sides, there's, there's real interest of what's going to happen there. So anything else I, I you want to say about that? Happen, I, I could be wrong, but I believe that we're going to adapt uh, a plan for regionalization and, okay. and that will allow some flexibility and, and this needs to happen and it should have happened a long time ago. Unfortunately, over the last 20 or 30 years, almost every vote we brought to the general conference was a proxy vote about this question that we're talking about today. So we stopped voting for things because they made sense and they were right. And we started asking, what does that mean when it comes to, you know, full inclusion or what does it mean when it comes to and and so what i'm looking forward to is the day when we're making decisions at general conference that are because they're the right decision to make for the health of the church and that's not all seen through the question of same sex same sex marriage and i think that that's coming i'm excited about that actually yeah i think that will lead into one of the first questions we have a little bit later yep. i know the next question is this is i know it's been a, a really hard and sad time for everybody in the United Methodist Church. I think, I don't think anybody's real excited. Yeah, I'm so glad we get to go through this. But that having been said, do you see any benefits of disaffiliation for those who remain United Methodist or for the denomination as a whole? I actually do. I'm, I'm pretty excited about where we are right now. And I think what I love, I, I joined the United Methodist Church, you know, 50 years or 40 years ago. And the entire time I've been United Methodist, we've been fighting over this question. And instead of being a mission-driven denomination, we have been a uh, conflict-driven denomination hmm. at hmm. the general church level. At local churches, they're mission-driven, but I'm pretty excited about the, the thought that the people who stay are excited about the future of the United Methodist Church, and they have a conviction about who we are and, and what we stand for, and, uh, and that 
you know, folks who felt like they were, because, you know, if, if you're on a, like, let's say you're on a committee in a local church, you've had this happen, no doubt. And you have somebody on the committee or maybe a couple of people on the committee who have, you know, one sort of way of seeing things and that everybody else is somewhere else. And so you spend all your time debating stuff as opposed right. to actually getting things done. Right. And, and to be able to bless people who are leaving and to say, God bless you. I mean, we wish you well. I, I know you're joining the GMC. I wish the GMC well. There are people that you all are going to reach with a Wesleyan, you know, in essence, United Methodist theology. You're, the theology is exactly what you're going to find in this book. Uh, I think our statement's a little bit better. It's more comprehensive than the one in the in the Doctrines and Discipline of GMC. But I think that's a good statement. And I agree with everything that's in Doctrines and Discipline statement, not related to human sexuality. But um, but yes, I, I'm pretty excited. And he, here's some of the things I'm already seeing. So there was a church uh, in Illinois that their church voted to leave. And 100 people said, we can't do that. We, we don't think that's, that doesn't represent who we understand we're to be as Christians. Mm -hmm. They started a new United Methodist Church. That church went from 100 to 200 in the last two months. And just, you know, and they're so excited. I was visiting, they were here for a conference at Resurrection they were just pumped up about, you know, like God is doing something amazing here and there's people coming and we just, and, and I, likewise, you know, there are GMC people who are going to go, they're going to take their UMC and they've become a GMC church and they're going to be excited. They're starting something new. And that's, that's can be wonderful too. And um, again, when it comes to evangelism and a whole lot of other things, you know, the GMC emphasis on that, like I'm there hundred percent. I'm very excited. I hope that, you know, hope they're able to reach people that, that, um, are not currently being reached for Christ in their communities. And so in God's providence, God, and I don't think God wills churches to split and denominations to split, but in God's providence, he doesn't waste it, but he uses it. And I think that's going to happen in the United Methodist Church too. I think we're, you know, I'm seeing this, I see it at Resurrection. We've had over 2000 people join the church in the last three years, and it's been exciting. And there are people who are coming saying, this is exactly, this is the church, you know, and, and they're not, they're not looking for a church that's primary issue is human sexuality. They want a church that's primary issue is Jesus. But uh, so, yes, I see, I see a lot of positive things that are going to come out of this. And I think when we get to general conference and we stop debating about this every year and demonstrations and everything else, and instead we're focused on what does it mean to be followers of Jesus and how are we going to change the world and how are we going to help people see his light, you know, and love and, and drawing people into authentic Christian discipleship. I think, I'm pretty excited about that. That's why I became a pastor. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that is in part why we become pastors. And I was in a situation where just recently I had a call from a church that is looking for a pastor. And it was a church where I was married, Statesboro, Georgia. Um, my wife uh, graduated high school in that church. And they missed the vote to disaffiliate by just a couple of votes. I don't know what it was, yeah. four or six. And there was some controversy with it. Well, the next Sunday, they had... I think 300 people and it happened to Easter Sunday and yeah. there it, it's amazing. I, was, I talked to this group of lay leaders who are just thrilled. They're excited about this opportunity for their church to exist. Now they're just, I mean, it's like building the ship while it's sailing. Uh, they're right. trying to figure out how they um, find a pastor. And we've seen that story happening time and time again. So yep. I think we, we want the best for people yep. on both sides. Exactly. And I do think there is, you know, so We'll multiply. They'll almost all those churches that are that were closely divided on the vote. There's going to be a, a church that's going to start out of that. That'll make both churches less healthy to begin with, in in some ways. Because if you take a church of, let's say, 100 people and 50 go start another church and 50, those are hard churches to see thrive. But they can, and sometimes will. And so I think 
you know, and Rob and I have a serious disagreement about this. So you'll you'll have a chance, your folks will have a chance to hear from them, him next week. I'm okay with people who are leaving because of their convictions around uh, human sexuality. What frustrates me is when you find the you find things that are outside the norm in United Methodism and you try to make it sound like the norm theologically. And then you convince people to leave because they because this is what's happening theologically in the United Methodist Church. And I think that's that's where there's a lot of people out there who are who are leaving or thinking about leaving because they're scared that the United Methodist Church, I, I get these emails all the time. And Rob denies that this comes from his group, and maybe it doesn't. Maybe it comes from some, you know, some kind of GMC people who are not in the in the norm, but trying to tell people. You know, the United Methodist Church will no longer believe in the Trinity and no longer believes in the resurrection and no longer believes in the atoning work of Jesus and no longer. And you can find persons to quote who, whether in context or out of context, will sound like that's true. That simply does not represent who we are. It doesn't represent it in any polls I've taken across the country. It doesn't represent it of uh, the polls I've taken among clergy. It just and so that's where where I, if if you're leaving because you you say, you know what, marriage is only this and I can't be in a denomination where they would, anybody would be allowed to, to interpret scripture differently. I'm like, God bless you. You know, it's okay. Um, yeah. I just want to make sure people leave for the right reasons and not for something that was a, what I consider misinformation. And uh, Rob can quote, he's got, you know, I've watched his videos. He can quote a number of people that make it sound like this is the trend in the United Methodist Church. It, it simply is not, in my opinion. Well, hear, hearing that, that you've done some empirical searches on that to make that clear is helpful. I'm, anecdotally, it's been true in my experience is when I was at Perkins, both were both on both of our, sure. both of us went to that school. We're both alumnus at that school. Um, I was in a small group and I was there in my Salvation Army uniform and there was a couple of their United Methodists around me in a small class. And I was the only one to affirm the resurrection there. So like, and that was a, that was a, a strange moment for me. Now, maybe, maybe I asked the question in the wrong way. Again, this isn't empirical, yeah. but it was something that I had to work. I'm like, wow, this is very interesting where yeah. where things are headed so i, well, I, let me, I can let understand me, why me, people might feel that way sure, based upon right. just a couple of points here and there but at yep. the same time like yeah it's good it's good for you to say sure. that i'm glad for yep. you to say that you don't think that's yep. going to happen when uh so a study was done and i don't remember it's probably been 10 years ago now in the united methodist church uh that looked to see the number of people who believed in the resurrection today or at that time versus 30 or 40 years before more people believed in the resurrection more clergy believed in the resurrection today than they did 30 or 40 years ago. Coming out of the sort of liberalism of the late uh, 19th century, going into the early 20th century, there were folks who then spiritualized yeah. the resurrection. And I think there were there were a number of, uh, you know, Pannenberg and a number of others who helped people be able to go, wait, it's possible to be a thinking person and believe in the resurrection. And I think yeah. that led to an, a significant, and I've told Rob this, I said, Rob, your group, you know, Good News and, and other groups that you've been a part of, we're helpful in helping people reclaim the resurrection. I celebrate that. And, uh, you know, I was, when I was at, at Perkins, there was one of my seminary professors, you know, he believed that we were remembered by God, but not that they, that we were literally raised from the dead, you know, our own resurrection, not just Christ's resurrection. And, uh, and I sat there, you know, and I thought, okay, I'm going to listen to understand his arguments. And I was grateful. I did. He was somebody who was re so this is interesting, but if you look at theology, often we are responding to whatever was happening in our time. So, so Schubert Ogden was the process theologian at, at uh, Perkins. He was a brilliant guy. And I don't know if he was there when you were there or not, but he, a uh, no. brilliant guy. And at the I same time, you know, was much more to the left in terms of certain things when it came to theology. But, you know, when you studied him, he was coming out of the, he was responding to and trying to make the faith 
makes sense to the God is dead people of the late 1960s. So if you understood what he was responding to, he was trying to, in his own mind, trying to figure out how do I help this faith speak to a generation that's saying that God is dead and there's no more need for God. Well, process theology made sense in that. And, and you know, anyway, when I understood that, I came to appreciate the things that he had to bring to the table, while at the same time being able to say, but I don't agree with that. And I think that's in the United Methodist Church, you're going to find uh, the vast majority of people believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, they believe in the, you know, the resurrection of the body. Right. Uh, vast majority, I'm like, you know, a huge percentage of people. And at the same time, there are people who have questions. And what I've said is, there's room for you to have questions here. That's one of the things I love about this church is room for you to have questions. And I think it's normal for us to wrestle with doubt and questions. But this is a place where I hope that you're going to ultimately find, you know, where you're going to find the truth about Jesus for yourself. You're going to be able to ask questions and be able to and be able to come to a place where you say, oh, finally, that makes sense to me, because that's where I was as a kid. You know, I love Jesus, but I couldn't believe in the resurrection. It took yeah. a particular moment in time for me to be able to go, of course, I believe that. That makes sense. I mean, this not only makes sense intellectually, but when it comes to the hope of the gospel, it makes sense. And so when I was at Perkins, there were, there were people who were students, you know, I'm like, and they tell me what they believe. I'm like, wow, okay, <laughs> I'm not in Kansas anymore. That's right, literally. <laughs> yeah, literally. But but then you watch people change. You watch them grow. You watch them mature. Right. There, there was a young man that I uh, was on the board of our new ministry, and he was coming through in the process, and and he didn't believe in the Trinity. And you know, I said, I'm sorry, but this is what we believe. This is, you know, I love you, and I'm I'm excited you want to be a pastor, but but either you need to spend a little more time studying this and trying to understand it, or Maybe you'd be a better fit in the Unitarian Church, but you know this is we're going to sing songs about the Trinity. We're going to teach about the Trinity. We're right, going to, right, right. And, and we need our pastors to be able to articulate that. And he went back. He spent another year in seminary, and he came back and he said, "I get it now," you know. Mm -hmm. And I was really glad. And he, you know, he was in tears when we told him no. And I, you know, I felt like being in tears because I love this kid, you know, a young yeah, man. Yeah. And today he's a very effective pastor. But it required our being clear about where you know where our boundaries were, and encouraging him to spend a little more time, not condemning him. Right. but encouraging him. And I think often we find ourselves condemning people who aren't where we were, we are, as opposed to encouraging them to continue to grow. And, and uh, anyway. Yeah, we, I, I, I get as somebody in theological education, our process is to lead people through a process of having difficult questions, looking at various perspectives. Like that's what we want to do at Wesley Biblical Seminary. So like right. the importance of asking questions, you know, we, we come out with a slightly different perspective. Like we come out with a, with a definite theological basis that doesn't move from certain, in certain areas, but that's where we're different. Okay. Well, actually, um, I think we're pretty much the same when it comes to our theological standards. So our theological tasks and standards, those are immovable. Now there may be places to allow people to question, but there, those are, you know, those are things that we say, this is our doctrine. This is what we teach and preach. Well, that hasn't necessarily happened at like uh, at Methodist institutions the same way that you would hold to the same standards when you have various celebrations of, you know, pagan rituals and that sort of thing. I mean, there, there's been some yeah. extreme things there. You have to admit. And and like from what I'm saying is like, we yeah. take, we take a foundational piece of biblical authority, like our kind of like characteristic beliefs that are absolutely essential for us. And sure. you might disagree with this and this is, and we're not United Methodist school. We're right, not approved right. by the university Senate. We are yeah. approved by the global Methodist church. But like yeah. we take a hard stand on on scripture and scripture's authority, and we subscribe in general to the Chicago Statement on inerrancy. And at the same time, yeah. we also affirm 
Um, and I think I don't think you would deny this either, but the the reality and promise of experiencing sanctifying grace in this life. So like those are like the scripture right. and holiness are key to us. So like, so somebody who's going to be hired at Wesley Biblical Seminary and, yeah, and to, I'm, I'm led this process are going right. to affirm those things. Yep. So, and, and if you move away from that, you're moving away from the institution. Right, right. I think, I think that's right. And you know, we do disagree on inerrancy. There's a, a you know, I wrote a book several years ago on called Making Sense of the Bible with several chapters on why, yeah, uh, why inerrancy is not something that I, that I feel like we can affirm. But, um, but I think that uh, the idea that, you know, we look to scripture as our primary authority, written authority in, in faith and practice. Now, Jesus is our primary authority and scripture bears witness to him. But um, yeah. And I think there are, you know, there are places and times where I look at things that happen in the United Methodist Church and I just shake my head. I'm like, really? How did that happen? And, uh, you know, I, what, and, and so I read something yesterday about uh, pagan ritual or something happening at a seminary. And like in, in a United Methodist seminary, my answer is that shouldn't be happening. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure how frequently that happens. And I, I could be wrong. Maybe I'm misunderstanding. But, uh, you know, that that isn't something that should be happening. Right. What I can say is when I was in seminary at Perkins, you know, we did have, we had Buddhists, we had a class on uh, religion in a global perspective. I was so glad to have Buddhists come in and talk about their faith and Hindus and others, because I wouldn't have yeah. known any of those had I not had the opportunity to hear it from somebody who was an advocate. And that has helped me to be a more effective witness for Christ, having actually heard from people who held views different from my own. For sure. And, I mean, uh, like I we that's... do that at Wesley Biblical too, you yeah. know, in our, in our world religions classes. And uh, the, I now, I'm not saying that you, Perkins did this, but uh, but we just don't have those folks on faculty, you know, or yeah. or like somebody like a, a Roman Catholic too. Even though like you and I probably both benefited from Roman Catholics on the faculty right. at United Methodist Schools. Okay, I'm going to keep going, Adam. Sure, uh, go ahead. So the next question is, what do you see as the biggest challenge going forward for the United Methodist Church, both immediate and in the long run? Like, what are the challenges you guys are going to experience? Yep. Well, I think the uh, uh, the immediate challenges are for annual conferences where they've had a number of churches leave is there'll be financial repercussions for that. So they're going to have to reorient. And I actually think that's a good thing. I think, you know, any, anytime you've had something like this, a crisis is a great opportunity for something good to come out of it. And I think that will happen there. I think it's also going to force them to look at where do we, how do we start new churches and new faith communities? And I think the greatest growth opportunities we have, whether it's GMC or UMC is starting new faith communities. And so I think that's going to be important. I think it's going to be important to be to look at what do we do to unify congregations that have been divided over votes. Most of our churches didn't take a vote. But okay. for those who did, if you took a vote, you're now divided. You know, that's why I when we were as a like we we don't vote on things that are not, you know, if you vote on the color of carpet, the people who in, in your new sanctuary, the people who don't like the color of carpet may tend to want to leave because they didn't get their color carpet. Right, this is right. a much bigger issue than that, but you're going to have. So what do you do to bring those churches together? And that's going to be true for the GMC churches too. If a church voted to go GMC and they've got 30% of the people who didn't vote yeah. to do that, how do you bring those people together? Right. And right. so I think that's going to be really, really critical is how are we bringing people together uh, around common vision and mission? The reality is for both UMC and GMC, if a church votes to leave to go to the GMC and they were not growing before, voting to go join the GMC is not going to help them grow now. It, it, it There are... I'm dubious in most cases that the reason why they weren't growing was because of the denominations debate over human sexuality. There may be places where that was the case. I don't think that's the case in most places. And so we've still got to look at what is it. And for churches that say, you know, it, it was the book of disciplines position that kept us from growing. I'm like, 
Yeah, maybe. But uh, so United Methodist Church, but I'm pretty sure it was more than that. I'm pretty sure you've got to figure out some of the essentials to helping create dynamic congregations. One of those is to know what's your mission? What's God called your congregation to do? And to be really clear about that, you've got to have preaching that speaks to people's head, heart, and hands, that is biblical, that is inspired, that's led by the Holy Spirit. You've got to have congregations who are missionally driven to go serve out in the community, out in the world. And there's a whole host of other things. You know, we've got to do really great care for the people in our congregations. And we're living at a time where less people are going to church than ever before. And so we've got to figure out how does the gospel speak to non-religious and nominally religious people. So those are the challenges that the GMC is going to have. Those are the challenges that the UMC is going to have. The GMC has a large number of small churches. The UMC has a large number of small churches. We have both of those denominations. I have friends who lead large churches who are who left the UMC. Their churches were declining for the last 10 years. They're not going to instantly start growing because they joined the GMC, or most of them aren't joining the GMC. They're becoming independent. Those are simply not, there are other issues. There are more core issues about what does it take to be a vital congregation that have to be addressed. And, um, you know, I, I've known people on the, on the left who are like, once we get rid of these statements, the book of discipline, I'm like, yeah, th that's a roadblock for some people. Right. But we've got to, you know, we've got to know what does it take to create highly vital congregations and to live that gospel. And, um, and so that's going to be the great challenge for both denominations, I think. There's We're a missional and sociological concept. And, and like you're a master of it, I would say, like of, of how to create an environment that has a cohesive mission. And that's part of why you said your church has um, grown by 2,000 members in the last three years. So I think you'll be really helpful to the United Methodist Church if they're able to listen to you. Do, do you, in light of the way that mainline denominations have been on decline and the United Methodist Church has been on a climb. Do you think that the United Methodist Church will grow numerically? So I've always said that that we that the reasons for our decline are that those reasons will continue for a period of years. I anticipated that you know we would probably stop aside from the divisions. So if the divisions hadn't happened, we were going to continue to decline in part because our congregations are older, they're smaller, they're older, a large number of them. And they are, you know, we had a time in the 80s where people were leaving the church. They were looking for something different than what the United Methodist Church, many United Methodist churches were offering. But uh, today, people aren't leaving, they're dying. And I mean, we have people who are leaving to join the GMC. So that's that's that. But once all that the dust is settled, I think, um, here's what I think. We will continue to decline numerically in a lot of places because we got small churches in places that there's not enough people to support that. Right. But I do think that there are a lot of churches that are going to have an opportunity to revitalize. And that's what I, and I think what's happening now, so you mentioned Nazarene, Salvation Army, the United Methodist Church, Global Methodist Church. I think there's a reorganizing and a reordering of those churches in the Wesleyan tradition. And I think there are, we've got a lot of Nazarenes who are here at Church of the Resurrection. Um, one Nazarene pastor said, we're the largest Nazarene church in Kansas city. If you look at the Nazarenes who yeah. were drawn to this congregation yeah. and staff members and pastors, and, and almost weekly, I have conversations with people about that. And there are Nazarenes who are much more conservative. And so there's a sort of reordering the progressive Nazarenes make great United Methodist. The, uh, I thought at one point the GMC might've done well to look at joining the Nazarene church or maybe the Wesleyan church or the free Wesleyan church or one of the others, because they're, they're aligned. They, they align really well together instead of start starting something new from scratch. And I think some of the larger churches are trying to figure that out too. But, um, I do see hope I actually see, and I'm a rose colored kind of glasses guy, but I think when you do, 
I think what for the United Methodist Church, I think our emphasis on the intellectual side of the gospel, the heart side of the gospel, and the doing side of the gospel, the head, heart, and hands, when we do that well, and we you know we have vital worship, I think we're I think people are drawn non-religious people are drawn to churches that actually do something in response to their faith when it comes to working with the poor, when it comes to engaging uh, injustice. And when they come to the churches, they find that there's a spiritual vitality and that people are drawn into faith in Jesus Christ. They're encouraged to read their Bibles. I mean, these are our expectations for membership here are that, are that you worship every weekend, that you pray five times a day. And so we nurture people. And how do you pray at least five times a day? We, we, are, we challenge people and, and expectations that they're going to read the Bible every day. And, you know, so, you know, we give Bibles to everybody. We, you know, we want them to read scripture. They're called to serve uh, in the community and in the world, that they've got to be do, pursuing acts of justice and mercy in their community and in the world. And, uh, and they are sharing their faith with other people. And so I think when you do those things, people are drawn to that. And when they find a faith that speaks to their head and their heart and their hands, and, and I'm going to say that's true for the Salvation Army, the Nazarene Church, the GMC, the UMC, um, vital Christ, you know, that looks like vital Christianity. But what we have to recognize is today in, a, in an increasingly secular world where people have been turned off by Christianity and what they perceive as its judgmentalism or its narrow-mindedness or whatever, they got to see the gospel lived out by us as churches. They've got to see churches who are actually pursuing, you know, not just praying for God's kingdom to come on earth, but actually pursuing it in their communities. And when they see that, I think they're open to coming and experiencing the light and life of Christ in our churches. And if people listen, listen to you, hopefully they'll be able to do that. Do you think that will happen? I know I don't mean, I'm sorry to ask for a yes or no, but no, no. Did you, do you think this will happen in the UMC with what's emerging? I'm going to say yes, and I'm going to do everything I can during my remaining years in ministry to see that happen. Gotcha. Um, I've seen tons of examples of it, and it's very exciting. And I, you know, we started a new location just uh, right before Christmas. It was a United Methodist Church that was down to 60 people a Sunday in worship. And today we're running 450 a Sunday there, right across from the University of Missouri at Kansas City in a very, you know, an area where we should be able to reach people. And it's just been, I preached there last Sunday at 9 a.m., and it was like to see, it was the church where I was an associate pastor and to have seen it with 60 people mm. and now to see it with 450 people, it's exciting. And so, yes, I, I think that can happen and I've watched it happen and it is glorious to see a resurrection take place in churches that are vital and alive. And, and um, I want to say one last thing about the, the, well, however many more questions you have is great, but we might get one more in, I hope. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Well, I'll let you get that one more in, but I want to say. You know, we disagree on on this. I'm assuming that you and I do, but yeah. Um, there are so last Sunday I was I went to one of our other locations. I'm on vacation now and and study leave this month. Went to one of our other locations, and I had uh, this young woman come up to me and she said, "I just want to. I've never met you before. I just want to thank you for starting Church of the Resurrection." And I said, "Well, thank you. I'm you know really tell me your story." And and uh, she's a PK and her sister's a PK in a more conservative Wesleyan denomination, and uh, her sister came out. And that was really hard for her dad, who's a pastor. And, and that led, you know, these two sisters to stop going to church and stop pursuing their faith. And their mom, who is a part of the more conservative Wesleyan denomination, said, please go to Church of the Resurrection. Now, please go there. Hmm. And, you know, her mom's praying for these girls to be in church. And, uh, and she said, you know, we came here and we found a church that was vital and passionate and, you know, the same theology, but 
yet you were, you know, you were welcoming to my sister. And I just want you, want you to know how much we appreciate that. And my dad still doesn't like you, but my mom is really glad we're coming to church here. And, you know, I appreciated that. And I think, again, there are people who are on the more conservative side who are going to go to a GMC, maybe the GMC that you're, you know, that you're at. And uh, I celebrate that, but I think there's, I think it's important in this Wesleyan tradition, we disagree on how we're interpreting scripture. We agree that we love Jesus and we want people to know Jesus and we want to be light and salt in the world. And, and we're going to reach people that the GMC will not reach. And, and I think there's an increasing number of those people in our world as more and more people are, are turning away from faith in any denomination. You know, the Southern Baptists yeah. have lost more members than the Methodists have the last you know few years. I mean, it's, it's happening everywhere. And, um, so I'm I'm pretty yeah, excited. I, I would I, I can I can see that mom's heart, and I I can understand why she might want uh, her daughter to go to your church. And maybe if she's thinking, okay, if there's other Methodist church, I really don't want her to go to the church where uh, Pastor Penny Cost, the trans uh, the cross dressing person, um, drag queen. To I'm sorry, I don't know the right terms, but like you can see, like there's and that's the tension yeah. I wanted to bring out. And I think you've done a great job, Adam, of highlighting the centrist, the central side to it. But there's the extreme version that I think really does worry people, and th those things are real. Like those those testimonies from folks in that perspective, from that perspective, yeah. are real. Okay, what type of pastors do you think? should be attract should be attracted if they're feeling called to ministry if they want to serve someplace what type of pastors and i'm thinking about this in theological education and sure. we'll still serve people in the united methodist church we have a, a huge group of people in our dmin program who are united methodist pastors some who are yep. staying in the united methodist church but as you're thinking about people who might be feeling called to ministry um what type of people should feel led to the united methodist church yep i uh so here's my hope is my hope is we have people who are uh and again the titles don't work very well anymore i used to talk about evangelical progressives and progressive evangelicals and today okay. progressive means something different than it used to mean and right. evangelical means something different than it used to mean and so neither of those words are necessarily as helpful as they used to be i'm sorry yeah, I've got... that's true um but yeah, I, that's what I think. I think, you know, and, and I describe myself as evangelical progressive or a progressive evangelical, depending on the issue in the day of the week. Okay. So the evangelical desire, the passion right. for reaching non-religious and nominally religious people and helping them find Christ and see their lives transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit is, should drive us. And at the same time, we should also find ourselves recognizing that the church, the body of Christ is, is God's response to the brokenness in our world. That, that we are the hands and feet of God, hands and feet of Christ. And so where there's injustice or there's pain or there's hurt or there's people who are alienated, I look at Jesus and, I mean, his constant, you know, driving passion, especially in Luke's gospel, was to find people who others had alienated or pushed away from God. And, and he was reaching out to them. You know, he says that in Luke 19, 10, the son of man came to seek and to save those who are lost. And for him, that was, you know, that was the hungry and the thirsty, but it was also the lepers and the, and the, Samaritans and and women and you know and so I, I think the idea of how we're, and I use we use a lot uh, the uh, Ron Heifetz terms from Harvard on uh, you know what do leaders do leaders close the gap between the world as it is and the world as it's supposed to be hmm. and the world as it's supposed to be is the kingdom of God and our task is both to draw people into the kingdom to draw people to Christ and then to work you know as we can to close the gap between the world as it is and the world as God wants it to be and I think you know, those are the folks that we're, 
Sorry. Yeah. Let me let me uh, follow up. There's one quick thing there with that, like the the desire to seek and save the lost. What if somebody came to Church of Resurrection, and maybe they're in a small group or a Sunday school class, or may, maybe even on a Sunday morning, they said, "I need to confess my sins," and they came up and they said, "I, I have been living in a homosexual relationship. I'm a practicing homosexual." And this is a sin. I read it in scripture and I'm confessing that and I want to change. Um, what would, what would you say? Yeah. Well, first of all, we wouldn't do that in front of the church. Probably. Well, I mean, so, what if they came, so if, if, they, if, somebody, if they came in if a small came, group, yeah, they came to I, you as well. Yeah. I would say if they came to me personally, let me just answer that question. If they came to me personally, I'd want to talk through this with them and I'd want to find out more about, you know, what's their, what is their experience of homosexuality there? I think there are people for whom if I'm straight, and I'm going to go have gay sex, you know, that's a sin for me. I don't believe that that's God's will for my life. I think there are people who are gay or lesbian. And I think for them, conversion therapy and trying to make them be heterosexual is not the answer from my perspective. And, uh, and I wasn't and so, saying that, just be clear. I was just saying like, right. if they come to, I yeah, just yeah, you know, I, I understand, but, but I think I would want to know, uh, cause generally I've had a lot of those conversations, but they're not the way you've just expressed it. Um, I've had literally conversations with, I'm guessing, well, certainly dozens and dozens of people who came to me and what they said was, you know, pastor, I'm, I'm gay. I've known I've been gay since I was a kid. And I just want to know, is it safe to come to this church? I love your preaching. And I love, I love what I experience here and I experience God and I want to follow Jesus. And I've, I've been hurt and beat up so many times in churches, not physically beat up, but emotionally beat up. And I just want to know, is it safe for me to come here or, who, who want to talk through, you know, the feelings they've had or want to talk through what their parent, their parents response to them or a whole host of other things. I've, so, you know, I just say, and that, and that before my own views changed, I'm talking about even when right, I would have right. said, I think this is a sin. And so my answer then would have been, you know, no, you're not going to be. So I remember several of these conversations where my response was um, when they came, came to talk about this, you know, I love you and you're not going to get beat up by me here. I'm going to be an right, advocate right, for you. Right. I'm going to go to the mat for you. Right. And I don't think this is God's will for your life. And so that would have been my answer earlier in my ministry. And um, I would say the more I studied, the more I tried to understand, the more people that I met, the more stories I heard, the more I began to think theologically and biblically about how we interpret scripture, the more my views changed on that. And so um Anyway, I don't know. That's I'm, great. I, that, that's helpful. I know I threw that question in there. Um, no, it's, and it, it's, it's, it's from my own experience. And maybe, and in, in, in I'm in a different, I've been in a different context serving people yeah. who are homeless. And that, that's been a question that's come to me. Adam, yep. thank you so much. It's great to Absolutely. talk to you. It's really, I'm, and I mean this, it's an honor to talk to you. And I, it means a lot to me that you are willing to take time to do this. Likely, if you just looked up Wesley Biblical Seminary, you knew that we were a conservative school. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. So thank you so much for no, uh, no, taking I'm, the time with me. It means a lot. Andy, I really appreciate you asking me. I was, I felt the same. So I, I had to look up Wesley Biblical Seminary because I, I wasn't as familiar with it. And, you know, when I saw your, you know, the, the school, it looks like a great school. It looks like you're doing great work. Yep. And going like uh, crazy. Well, right. That's awesome. And, uh, and I thought, you yeah, know, I'm really glad he wanted to reach out to me and talk to me, you know, and, and what you try to avoid is people who are setting a trap for you where, where they're actually, what they want to do is just, you know, I, I try to avoid those, but I, I looked, I looked you up and I thought, that doesn't seem like Andy. It's, I feel like he wants to have an earnest conversation. And I love talking with anybody about these things. I, you know, I, I think one of the passages that's been important to me is when Paul talks about, we see through a glass dimly, you know, and what I realize is I don't fully understand 
you know, right, right. everything about the mind and heart of God. I'm doing the best I can as I'm, as I'm trying to live my life and trying to follow Christ. And so I think we've got to be able to listen to each other. We've got to be able to hear each other. We've, I've got to be able to look at you, Andy, and go, you're doing really important kingdom work. And I'm really glad that we're on the same team, even if we disagree and we're not on exactly the same team. We're in the same league, maybe, or maybe we're not on the same league. Maybe we're at least in the same sport, but maybe, maybe, maybe but, a different sport. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> no, maybe just, a different sport. I don't know. We're, we're humans. who are trying to follow Jesus the best that right. we can. That's and, right. and we look to the scriptures. We look to the historic essentials, of the Christian faith. And at least for me, I'm okay that you see things differently. I, yeah. I know, I feel like I know where you're coming from because I was yeah. there for a long time anyway. And I value that and I value what you're doing. And I just want to say thank you for the work that you do. And, and Rob, you're going to have Rob on. I know you're interviewing him later. I value Rob. You know, he and I actually share a lot in common and some stuff where we dis disagree. And I, um, you know, I don't, you know, I, I, we disagree, but I value him too. And I, you know, I know that he's trying to do the best he can based upon how he sees the world. And I think that's, I think that's all that any of us can do. So anyway, thanks again for having me thanks, on your Adam. program. I really appreciate it. Good to talk to you today, Andy. Yeah, God bless you. Have a good day. God bless you. Bye-bye. Hey, friends. I just wanted to follow up with a few ideas from that podcast. By now, I've recorded both interviews, and I really encourage you to check out the next interview that will come with Rob Renfro. And I think there's really a contrast that exists about what's going to happen in the future UMC. And I, my suggestion is that Adam's somewhat naive because he's had a great experience in his local context. But nevertheless, I think you'll see the contrast to be pretty clearly represented. Now, I didn't debate with Adam in that convent context, and that was that was my commitment. I just want to make one comment that I was tempted to pull in, but I decided not to, and that is that he suggested that the big change or the big difference between the positions is a matter of interpretation. And I found this idea that it's just our interpretation uh, to be somewhat of an ambiguous statement, not just from Adam, but like a lot of people in our time. Like whenever you suggest any sort of truth, that it comes like, well, that's just an interpretation. And I think I want to just pull us back to uh, a clear kind of Reformation doctrine uh, about the clarity of Scripture. Sometimes it's called, and this word's hard to say, the perspicuity of Scripture. And that, that's basically stating that Scripture is clear. And the, and the Protestant reformers were trying not to just suggest that the Bible has authority, but that the Bible speaks clearly. And one of the key, key pieces, too, is that the Bible has a meaning, that there is meaning in the text, and that we as interpreters try to find the best interpretation. So the existence of multiple interpretations doesn't just lead us to a place of jumping past the interpretive process. And I think a lot of times when the argument is used, well, that's just your interpretation, leans in to an idea of pluralism as if it just suggests that we all just kind of come to our truth. No, I, I think there is a truth. There's an objective truth that exists outside of us, outside of our feelings, and that's something that is clear throughout Scripture. Now, there are clear parts of Scripture and there are less clear parts of Scripture, but we interpret the less clear parts by the clear parts. And so I just want to, to kind of facilitate that kind of like basis under basic understanding of how we move through the interpretative process. You know, certainly there are, uh, there's a, a 
pluralistic idea of even of what happens with regards to human sexuality throughout the Bible. But there is a, a monologue or a clear presentation about same-sex behavior. And I think we look to Jesus and his affirmation of human sexuality, the, the, the binary of male and female, his affirmation of marriage, his closing of the loopholes of polygamy and the like that comes all throughout, um, the, like the, the exceptions or the, the challenges of the loopholes that, that arose earlier. Jesus closes all that out. But one of the interesting things is that there are no loopholes as it relates to same-sex behavior. And so this isn't just an interpretive issue. There are issues that are black and white. And obviously, Adam has written a book called Seeing Gray in a World of Black and White. And I recommend that you read my old professor, Dr. Bill Arnold's book, Seeing Black and White in a World of Gray. And um, I also recommend, I since since I had the conversation with Adam, I also had a, recorded a podcast with Robert Gagnon, which will come out later this summer, where we went on for an hour and 45 minutes about whether or not a Christian, a faithful Christian, should attend a gay wedding. So I think so there's some of that type of content that comes in my podcast, but I thought it might be helpful for me. I, I almost, I, I just had to give a little response here. Um, and also in general, I just feel like um, the the challenges that are very apparent of um, kind of the, the problems of the big tent of Methodism, that as that tent gets bigger and bigger, it pushes out not only the conservative position, but my fear is that even somebody who would affirm the Apostles' Creed, like Adam, won't have a place before long. But maybe maybe I'm wrong in that. So I encourage you to check out the next podcast. Thank you for checking my podcast out. It means a lot to me. Thank you for coming along for this series. This is the last of this series. We have some great stuff coming out the, um, the rest of this summer, in the summer of 2023. And I appreciate you checking out these things. God bless you all. <laughs>